Hey everyone, welcome to The Start. I'm your host, Patrick Johnson, and this week we're with Andy Mangold. Um, one note I will say is that in this episode, Andy and I do talk about what currently are considered sensitive topics, so just be aware of that. Uh, hopefully be open, more than welcome to carry your own, your own opinions and all that good stuff, but I wanted to give you a heads up, that way no one was surprised. Otherwise, in this episode, we talked about a lot. It was really cool to have Andy on the show. Um, I've, lived, I've listened to Andy's podcast. He has a podcast called On the Grid. I've listened to it in the past, um, and it's a really good show, and it was, I was really excited to have him on, um, partially because I figured he would be like way more prepared than I was, and he basically was. Um, but the other good thing is that he has an incredible story. Um, in brief, Andy likes to make things. He made things like a pretty cool like wooden motorcycle control that would sit on top of his PlayStation controller when he was playing a motorcycle game, so he could try to act like an arcade game where you could like lean left or right to turn. Um, and he did that when he was a kid and this premise of making very much carried on throughout his life. Uh, he made that, he made a variety of rubber band guns. He made, uh, potato guns. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Uh, I am, but I've never made one. So I was, I was pretty much in awe cause that's something I wanted to do as a child so badly. Um, he went to a college called Micah, which is a an arts and design school where actually one of our other de- guests and one of Andy's friends, Johnny Hallman went as well. Uh, and he briefly talks on sort of their relationship, how they, how they met um, and how Johnny actually helped Andy a little bit um, getting an internship and some work and stuff. But the really, I don't know the, the parts that I really enjoy about this. I mean, I enjoy it all. Right. Um, but the one part that I thought was really interesting is when he talked about starting uh, friends of the web, which is the consultancy that him and a bunch of friends run. Um, Andy is clearly much more courageous, I guess. I, not courageous. Uh, he's, he's got bigger balls than I do. Not bigger, but he, he takes risks. That, so what I'm trying to say is that Andy takes way more risks at a much younger age than I would have ever thought to do, um, which is really inspiring, I think. You know, it's one of those things where you get to meet people um, or listen to people in some cases and just hear their story, hear about the risks that they took or the risks they didn't even realize they were taking And you sort of see it come to fruition and you realize that you can do that too. Um, And at the very least, the one thing that I take away from this is the idea that all of us can take the same or similar, you know, within our own means kind of risks. It's not, there isn't one special breed of person that can do this, uh, that we all, that we're all capable of doing it to some degree. Um, So yeah, I'll leave you at that. This is actually a, a, a good lengthy episode. So sit down, prepare yourself, get a, get a bucket of popcorn or whatever it is. And and I hope you enjoy the show. Um, I will leave you with this, the same admin stuff that I always say at the end of every episode, which is if you don't follow us on Twitter, follow us or just talk to us on Twitter. Uh, the start FM is the Twitter handle that you can reach us at. If you like the show enough to rate it on iTunes or podcatcher of choice, whatever, please do that. That helps us become more identifiable and findable and, and searchable on the internet. And if you like the show and you got some friends that don't know about the show, then why not send them an episode? This might be a good one to send. Uh, but yeah, anyways, I hope you guys can continue to spread the love. I hope you enjoy the show. Um, and that's all I got. This is the start.
Hey, Andy. Welcome to the start. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Hello, of course. Thank you for, for having me. Your audio sounds just so buttery smooth. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I, I hope so. I do this enough, so. Yeah, I mean, I just, uh, I got a, I mean, you can see it. Listeners can't. I got the Rode Podcaster mic this year. Each year, I, like, get a better mic. Um, I also, Step up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that much about, like, audio stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't want to get too deep into it because I don't want to like, you know, spend a lot of money on something I don't know how to use or anything like that. Um, but what doesn't help is that my office is just, it's a New York size bedroom. So it's still like somewhat echoey. Mm. Uh, so over Got to cover the walls and blankets. Got to buy some tapestries. Is that what it is? Yeah, that really helps if you do want to buy tapestries. But like, that's what, you know, you see in recording studios, they have all the like, yeah. crinkly cut foam on the walls. Yeah, like the, the eggshell foam or, or whatever it's yeah, called. The egg, egg crate curtain. stuff. Yeah, keeps, there you go. Keeps sound waves from bouncing off of flat surfaces, I guess. No, I don't really know anything about it either. I've just, <laughs> people have told me things over the years, mostly angrily because of audio quality on other podcasts. Yeah. Well, yeah. So why don't you, uh, introduce, I mean, so let me back up. I know you, um, because of your agency and I forget the name, but I think it's friends of the web. Correct. That is it. And then you have the web friends show. The is show correct? is called on the grid. Oh, never mind. Web friends thing. is a different one. That's probably all. I, it, I don't know. I don't know that other thing you said, but <laughs> that's not us. So friends of the web is, is the company you started, correct? Mm-hmm. And then you also do On the Grid, which is a podcast. And is that still on 5 by 5 Yep, it is. Okay. Uh, that's still happening. So, uh, yeah, that's you, you basically introduced me. That, that's what I do. <laughs> awesome. Um, so I'm I, I a dude. I ride my bike around Baltimore and, uh, yeah, have a podcast called On the Grid where, you know, we started the show because it was supposed to be a show about design mm-hmm. because we were not thrilled with the overall landscape of design-based podcasts. Mm -hmm. And then I think we kind of found out the hard way why there's not more shows like the ones we want to make, just because it's very difficult to make a show about design, like actual design, capital D, about like relevant subject matter. That just doesn't suck. It's uh, it's not a it's not a nice topic to talk about. Yeah. It's, uh, It's very weird. So the show is supposed to be about design still, and it's kind of turned into a few designers talking about whatever they feel compelled to talk about, which is usually related in some way vaguely. Yeah. I think that's fair though. Right. Like it's, uh, when you said it it became difficult to create a podcast around design, my immediate thought was like, you can't show the work, right? Like you can, maybe you can discuss Mm -hmm. something, but if someone hasn't seen it, so I'll use a really easy, but terrible example. If you guys are discussing the, uh, Uber rebrand, but someone hasn't seen it yet, it could fall on deaf ears. So that's my immediate, that was my immediate thought of how that could potentially be challenging. Yeah. I don't know how much that specifically has come up. Um, I I think more what it is, is I know I, and and the people I do the podcast with, we have this kind of shared feeling that so much of the discourse around design, Mm -hmm. you know, the things you read on blogs, uh, the things that happen on some other design podcasts, design podcasts kind of fall into two categories. There's like interview shows, which of which yours is one, which Debbie Millman show is one. Interview shows are are fine. They're great. Uh, You know, there's a place in the world, in the industry for interviews. Um, But I feel like the way the interview shows work necessarily is that you end up just talking about whatever this one person finds interesting or has directed their career or, you know, whatever. And over the course of, you know, many, many episodes of an interview show, you can kind of get to some idea of talking about ideas, but you tend to more talk about a person than you talk about ideas on an interview show, which is fine. 
So just those kind of shows. And then the shows that try to be about graphic design ideas end up being just impossibly shallow. It's like, yeah. we're going to talk about sketch for an hour and our favorite, you know, ways mm-hmm. that it's different than Photoshop uh, or, you know, we're going to whine about some rebranding uh, with a total lack of understanding of the sort of context around it or the actual decisions that were made behind closed doors that might have led to it. Sure. Uh, it, it's gross. All of it's gross. Do you think, and, uh, so I have a question then for you. Do you think the, um, the quote unquote shallowness of conversation in, in that realm is due to a lack of understanding? And here's, here's my, my train of thought on that. A lot, of, at least from doing this podcast, there are, there are a handful of designers out there who are self-taught. Uh, mm-hmm. they don't, they don't, maybe they don't come from a business or a strategy background. They sort of started with a, a bootleg version of Photoshop and for a while design was just making things pretty. Uh, now since design has become more in the forefront and it actually is very, very prominent in the business world and strategy world, but designers have not been a part of business and strategy. Do you think maybe the shallowness comes from just a lack of experience? Like is shallowness in discussion? Yeah. I mean, I think it comes from the fact that when I say design, the things that interest me about design, I recognize are a very small part, if at all a part of what interests many other people about design. Like a lot of people get into this industry, frankly, just because they really like art. They really like uh, visual culture. They like image making mm-hmm. uh, and design is a way that you can do that and also make a living. Uh, sure. like, that's a real thing. People do that because they want to be creative. Mm-hmm. This is a creative job they can have, um, which I have you know no disrespect for at all. Like that's great. If that's what you want to do, super awesome. Um, my interest in design is much more interest in like systems and, uh, you know, so I think it's just that the industry is one that people get into for a variety of reasons. And the only thing we actually share in common across all of us are the sort of technical aspects of the career, right? Like, yes, we do all use similar programs every day. And yes, we do all have to deal with, you know, color theory and some of these things that are, are much more less interesting to me to talk about, but that is regardless and undeniably the kind of common DNA of the industry. Uh, I kind of wish it wasn't some days, but it just (laughs) is. And there's no way around that. Yeah. So, so yeah, we, we, we tried to make a show that discusses design in what we consider to be a thoughtful way. And what ended up happening is first of all, you run out of topics pretty quickly because you know how many design topics are there out there. So if you want to make like a topical show where like each show is like, all right, this show is going to be about portfolios and we're going to talk about what that means uh, in a way that is hopefully not shallow and garbage filled. Mm -hmm. Um, You run out of those topics pretty quick. uh, So you can't just do that endlessly. Um, And then the next consideration is all of our shows ended up just turning into us talking about how, everything was subjective and there's no right answer. Uh, everybody's got their own perspective. Like it turned into this kind of like waffly, uh, like we have really nothing to say about this because we all recognize that it's complicated. Like, and, yeah. and there's value in having some of those conversations, but you have that conversation too many times and it's like, okay, so everything's complicated. Uh, all criticism is steeped in bias and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have a conversation enough times and it's just, there's nothing else to say about it. So yeah. Yeah, now I we talk about Kanye in the show all the time because <laughs> you can always talk about Kanye. That's hilarious. So then the question for you, um, also for the listeners, I will put a link to uh, Andy's show in the show notes. So if you don't already listen to On the Grid, then you can start now. But um, why did you get into design? Because you mentioned you talked about why some people, uh, but I'm curious why you got into it. So I always liked making things. 
Mm -hmm. of any variety. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I would build potato cannons and I wanted, <laughs> did you I spent, really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you go, awesome. go to Home Depot, you get PVC, you get some PVC adhesive, you combine things in different ways. You can either do the one that you blow up some, you know, ether or hairspray in the chamber. Yeah. Or you can do one, you pump up with a bike pump and you release a valve. I uh, did that a whole bunch as a kid. So one whole summer making like a full arsenal of rubber band guns. Uh, <laughs> I realized there's a theme so far to, so far two varieties of firearms. Um, yeah. Where, yeah did so you, like, you know, where did you grow up that you had the space to do this? I grew up in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia, okay. uh, a suburb called Westchester. We're known for having QVC's headquarters and for being the home of most of the people from the television show Jackass on MTV. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So if you've watched them like race, you know, uh, shopping carts down a hill and then crash yep. into a parking lot, I've been to that parking lot. Uh, that was oh, in my wow. hometown. That's hilarious. Um, it, you know, it was a it was a very nice place to grow up. Uh, like you just mentioned, I had the space. We had a yard. We had a garage. I had the space to do weird stuff and just make things. Um, it, also, I think you know the suburbs is a like isolating place. Like I, sure. I was never walking to friends' houses. That was not yeah. a thing. That was not part of my culture growing up. Uh, I had like immediate neighbors in like the five house cul de sac I was on, and one of those neighbors had a kid that was kind of my age. Uh, but beyond that, it was like spent a lot of time in my house and in my house I would play with Legos and build all these different crazy things. Um, but yeah, like I remember one summer I figured out, you know, the very simple mechanism of how most rubber band guns work, right? You have like a peg that's holding the rubber band and then it's attached to the front of the barrel. And then you have to just somehow knock that rubber band off of that peg and it shoots. Yep. Uh, and once I figured out the basic mechanism, I made all kinds of rifles and handguns and folding little handguns that you could like pack into a pocket and then unfold and like latch shut and then shoot and a gatling gun um a gatling gun <laughs> yeah I did, I did all kinds of stupid stuff and it mostly didn't work um <laughs> sure i remember one time specifically i had gone to an arcade and at the arcade they had one of those uh racing games it was a motorcycle mm -hmm. racing game that had a big plastic motorcycle that you could sit on and then lean yep. to yep. turn and i was like oh this is great I could do this though. So what I did is I had a little motorcycle racing game for PlayStation at home. Mm -hmm. So I went to home Depot again, bought a bunch of like, uh, you know, two by twos, uh, out of wood and got, got some foam core and made a bicycle or a motorcycle rather that I could sit on. And then I built a little cradle for it so that it would rest just on the PlayStation controller so that when you leaned it, it would press the turn buttons left and right, Holy uh, shit. which I thought was brilliant. That's uh, awesome. But then you couldn't accelerate. <laughs> <laughs> All the rest of the controls <laughs> were under work. this big wooden monstrosity. So I had to have like my sister get down and I was like, all right, now you just hold the accelerator button and I'll turn with this horrible wooden motorcycle. I spray painted green. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I could just sit here. I could list things, garbage crap like that for That's hours. really I cool though. How old were you when you made that? Oh, I have no clue. When did PlayStation come out? Let's check. Oh, geez. I don't know. I remember. Original. Uh, original. See, not everything's called PlayStation, so it's going to be impossible to find. Let's see. The original PlayStation came out in 94, it looks like, in Japan. Uh, so it's probably, I'm guessing I was probably eight or nine yeah. when I was doing this. Um, I tried to build a big robot, like, mech suit once that I was convinced I'd be able to get in and then pilot. And I got about as far as, like, the legs and the torso and then realized it'd be entirely too heavy and I would not be able to move at all. So there was like the corpse of this 
robotic exoskeleton made of wood that just sat in our garage for years until <laughs> my dad finally just threw it out. Um, so yeah, so it sounds I, like your parents were fine with you doing all this stuff. I mean, you weren't like causing any trouble. You were probably just like in the garage or backyard building shit. No, I, I was not causing trouble. It's, this was my, generally I was a very good kid. Uh, and I, I always had like unequivocal support from my parents and every stupid thing I ever wanted to do. Um, they basically, I think I, I think they basically made me like, if I was like, I want to go Home Depot and spend a bunch of money on this stuff, they would make me make a proposal and kind of make blueprints and show them what I was going to do to kind of demonstrate I had thought about it. Sure. Um, but yeah, there was never like, they knew that the robotic exoskeleton was not going to work. They're not idiots, but yeah. I was 10 and I was like, uh, it's totally going to work and I'll be super powerful. So we need to go to Home Depot and get some wood right now. <laughs> um, and they were like, all right, let's just let him fail and let him learn this for himself. And a little mini Iron Man. That's basically what I was going for. I was really into a video game at the time called Armored Core, uh, which you all can look up out there. When, when, you know, a, a typical mech suit fighting game where you're a robot with missiles and stuff attached to you. You know, as I'm saying all this, it sounds like I was extremely violent in my childhood with all these things I'm naming. Uh, it didn't feel that way, but maybe, you know, I mean, I think, I think given the time and where you grew up, it's probably what most kids are doing, right? Like when I was in elementary school, me and my friends talked about wrestling. And then when we grew up a little bit older and like a friend got a trampoline, we'd do wrestling moves on the trampoline. So I think, See, I, I think was that definitely was definitely not allowed to watch wrestling. Oh, uh, really? that was, I, I never saw it as a child uh, and therefore I have no interest in it as an adult. But yeah, I was not, not permitted to watch that. That was much too violent. Um, but you know, building a whole arsenal of rubber band guns, that was fine. <laughs> I guess it's because it's more creative. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my, my parents always supported me 100% in everything I ever did, which kind of imbued me with this extra confidence in my ability to do whatever it is I want to do, which has been a, a defining feature of my life, I would say. Uh, you know, so on top of the, the privilege I already have of being, you know, a uh, cisgendered, heterosexual white man, I also had parents that basically my entire life were like, yeah, you can do anything. Just go to Home Depot and buy the things and do it. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's a defining thing for sure is that kind of constant support. So I made stuff all the time. I was also always the artistic kid in school, always mm-hmm. drawing pictures. Uh, you know, in high school I skipped, I never had lunch any year in high school because I didn't care to go to the stupid lunchroom and like sit around and talk to stupid people. So I took extra art classes during my lunch period and just like ate dry ramen out of a package, <laughs> uh, for lunch during my art classes. They're basically um, chips at that point. Yeah, no, it's great. I actually highly recommend it. You know, I was, I was eating a lot of calories back then, you know, growing boy, et cetera. Um, that's one of the best ways, you know, you take two dry ramen packets, you eat that, you can, you can eat that real quick. It's pretty small, but then it kind of like expands in your stomach a little bit and it's really calorie dense. It's a good way to actually feel full, um, <laughs> very efficiently. So yeah, basically like I was the artistic kid my entire life. I was always making things. I didn't actually connect the dots that the like part of me that wanted to build rubber rubber band guns or try and make a robotic exoskeleton uh or like one time i I took a i had another phase where i would go on craigslist and get people that were selling bikes for like ten dollars like broken down old bikes Mm -hmm. and i would just buy them up as as, as many as i could afford and then i turned our garage into this like horrible bike frankenstein factory where i would just like take parts off of bikes and put them on other bikes and make bikes of weird shapes and sizes and proportions uh, made this weird chopper, but I didn't, I didn't realize until frankly college that like second like sophomore year of college, that it was the same thing in my brain that wanted to like mess around with bikes in a garage all summer that wanted to like draw pictures. Like it was just the same, like sure. basic impulse. Um, I had totally separated, like, you know, art was a thing that I did and I had classes in it and it was like, 
you know, respectable. And it was like mm-hmm. a thing that all the adults said was so great. And look, he drew an apple. It looks like an apple. This is amazing. He's got so many, so much promise. Uh, that was the thing that like, you know, I got lots of external validation on that. And all the stuff I made, it was kind of like, oh, interesting, weird. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Glad you're having fun. At least you're not doing drugs, I guess. Um, so I didn't really make connect the dots at all until I was, you know, in college that that was the same thing. And that design was kind of this nexus of mm-hmm. all of the things I liked from the art world and all of the things I liked about making stuff. Uh, and I'm still just making stuff. That's still what really drives me. I think it's just yeah. wanting to express myself in some way, uh, with some artifact or something. Where did you go to school at? Uh, I went to Micah. Okay. Um, I, uh, I did not do my due diligence senior year of high school in terms of researching colleges. Uh, I had, luckily I had one friend. I was going to, you know, a public high school in a suburb of Philadelphia yep. where, you know, the whole high school, it's a big high school. Uh, it, it was a good high school. It's in a good school district by all sort of qualitative measures. Uh, you know, it's a nice place to go to school, but you know, the art program was, I'm certainly not going to say underfunded because I've seen underfunded art programs, but sure. the priorities of the high school were definitely on like, you know, the $100,000 AstroTurf football field uh, was very important. Um, you know, Did you guys have a good football team then? I have no clue. Okay. I truly have no idea. Uh, I only say because that, so I, I grew up playing football and those kind of, I grew up playing football in Florida, which is a big deal. Uh, well, in high school sports and the schools that get stuff like that are usually the predominantly good schools. I know it wasn't like, you know, where I grew up, it wasn't like part of the external to the school culture. Like I know in the Midwest and in places in the South, like, you know, high school football is like a thing the whole town gets into, right? Like it's a, it's a thing where like there'll be a parade with the high school team, you know, walking down main street and everyone's so excited for them. It wasn't like that culture at all. Uh, I think it was just a culture of like, it's a well-funded school district. And that was, they had a lot of money. So they spent it on the the football field. Makes sense. Um, Another good example of that is they, you know, we had like a, world-class like weight training gym in our oh, high wow. school um which as i understood it at the time and i don't know how true any of this is but this is what i felt at the time and thought to be true was something that they wanted to buy for the football team and other sports teams um, in order to justify the purchase of such an expensive thing they uh basically made it part of every gym class that there was just yep everyone could use it two months of like required weight room time and so like <laughs> Basically, like the gym teachers would just like set us loose in the weight room and then sit there and like twiddle their fingers and not do anything. And we would just kind of walk around or just like sit on a stationary bike and talk for 45 minutes until the next class started. Uh, It felt very much like we don't really belong here. This is not for us. We're just here because then they could put it on the proposal for the weight room that it would be used by all 2000 students and whatever. Yeah. Long story short, uh, I graduated in a class of like 530 or 550 students as a big high school. And of all those students, one other student went to an art school. Uh, oh, wow. This, this is my friend, Molly. Uh, luckily, Molly was doing her research, and she was <laughs> going and visiting colleges. Uh, and so she basically, like, you know, she was on top of things, and I was kind of just skating by. Uh, yeah. And, you know, barely doing the bare minimum to get things done. But my main move in high school was just do the bare minimum to still get, like, a A-. minus. Uh, yep. And so I was doing that constantly. Um, and she basically came to Baltimore visited Micah and was like, Hey, you would love that place. You should go check it out. And so I came and checked it out and it, it's basically, it's effectively the only place I applied to go to college uh, because I didn't feel like drawing the extra pictures that RISD made you draw for their portfolio submission. Gotcha. I thought that was, I thought that was a completely uh, <laughs> a huge injustice in the world that they made you draw pictures just for their portfolio submission. Uh, and I didn't, it really didn't apply anywhere else. So 
I kind of fell backwards into that and got really lucky because it ended up being an amazing place that I loved. And I feel like, uh, it was, I grew tons there. Yeah. Um, and what did really you make? What did you major in? And I asked that because, so this is sort of, uh, I think two stories might intertwine at some point. So I interviewed Johnny Hallman in the first season. Oh yeah. Those, those will intertwine. <laughs> yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Um, uh, and I know intertwine with a fateful email, uh, winter break of sophomore year. Um, oh, wow. I, I, uh, I, I majored in graphic design. Okay. That was my intention coming in. I uh, just, what I ended up doing. I never ended up changing majors. I had uh, some during freshman year, I changed my mind a bunch of times and thought maybe I would change my major to, uh, sculpture or, or painting. Yeah. yeah Cause uh, everything there is all art based, right? Like you're not going to go be a mathematician at Micah. No, absolutely not. Uh, okay. it, it is a, it is an art school. Uh, they are most renowned, I think still for their, for their painting program, uh, which is, I think one of the best in the nation. Their, their design program has been up and coming for, for many, many years. Um, photography program is really good too. Um, they've been around for a long time since like the early 19th century. Oh, wow. So yeah, major in graphic design. I had, I had a minor in, in book arts. So you can get a studio concentration at Micah in like another field and sure. mine was in, in book arts. So, you know, making and sewing books of different varieties, which that was honestly the moment where I first realized like, oh, making stuff out of wood or leather is also design. That <laughs> <laughs> like blew my mind when I realized that because yeah. all the things that I had loved as a kid now all of a sudden could be like legitimized, right? Yeah. Like it was, this is like part of my career. Now this is part of my degree. Um, where before it was just like fun stuff I did on the side. And then I did art, which everyone said was great. Uh, mm-hmm. and gave me all sorts of external validation on. Um, so yeah, that kind of was like the moment where I was like, Oh, books, graphic design, plus art, plus making things. Uh, and yeah, like my, my portfolio of work at school was like, um, you know, it was right around the time, I think, I don't know when Best Made Co. became a thing. Uh, but, you know, that kind of like return to be like hipster, lumber sexual aesthetics. Like, you know, I made tons of stuff out of wood. Uh, you know, I would make giant type out of wood. I would do all kinds of like physical things with leather and wood and these kind of like, you know, materiality yeah. Uh, but it was also all design work. Uh, Wait, lots so of books. That kind I have of a question. What the hell is a lumber sexual? Oh, you haven't heard that term? No. Oh, it's like the it's like the culture of people living in cities wearing flannels and hiking boots just to like walk to the bodega. Uh, I thought that was just hipsters. Yeah, basically. Yeah, uh, if you're if you're well, just, <laughs> you know, there's a the hipster culture is a is a wide spectrum. It's a it's a rich tapestry. Yeah, that's uh, but true. But the one section is certainly like you know uh, having a beard, which I do. Uh, wearing flannels, wearing uh, your hiking boots. Maybe you own an axe you hang on your wall, even though you never have cut down a tree in your entire life. Um, <laughs> that's kind of like the lumber sexual uh, okay. culture. Um, so yeah, that, that's how you could, if you looked at my portfolio from from school, you'd be like, oh, this is a very specific thing. And I think it had, it had like its time and now it's kind of in its waning years. It's like a trend that people actually respond to. But uh, But for me, it was like a very personal thing. Like I'm combining my love of, working with wood, which I've done my entire life, uh, and design and art and making these like new things that are uniquely at this kind of, you know, nexus points where all of my interests kind of come together and I can make work that only I can make. Uh, yeah. Was, was at least the, the dream at the time. But yeah, that was that. That's how I got into design. Basically. That's crazy. I mean, I feel like, um, you know, you and Johnny, pro- not similar paths, but uh, similar paths in that you guys are both doing uh, things that then 
resulted in a moment of clarity where like, wait, I can do this for a living. Mm -hmm. Um, How did that rather not? How did that, did that change your perspective with what you were doing at school? So you were a graphic design major, correct? Yep. From what Johnny told me about, and actually I was listening to that episode yesterday. um, But from what Johnny told me about, some of the design courses, it was like, Hey, you guys are going to make a poster. It's 16 by 20. And then another class They're like, Hey, you guys are going to make a poster. It's 16 by 20. How did you, uh, with the exception of, of making like tangible things, how did you extend your interest in design to web-based things? Well, I don't want to, I don't want to throw shade too much at Holman. I mean, I do, I do really want to throw shade a lot at, at Holman, <laughs> but he's not here. So, uh, it feels a little bit unfair. Um, but, but Johnny is a good friend of mine. I met him when he, got me my first internship at a design studio in Baltimore. Uh, He was a a senior the year that I was a sophomore. I believe I had that math right. Um, And he basically, you know, sent me an email. was like, hey, you want to come work at this place I'm working? Um, That's how I met him. And then we ended up working together for a couple years and uh, becoming good friends. And, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. But uh, Johnny was notoriously disillusioned with his his education at Micah. Uh, You know, he had tons of independent studies because he was very convinced that uh, the classes were not going to give him anything that he wanted uh, out of them, which uh, I think is partially because he didn't never really tried to get what he wanted out of the classes. Sure. Um, you know, well, I think I, he always had a programming background too. Like he always tinkered sure, in. And yeah. That and, uh, you know, I, I had been making websites since high school. Um, you oh, know, wow. basically like all of my, my friendships, my entire life, um, all my meaningful friendships have always been around making things together. Yeah. Like, I never had the group of friends that we would just like, hang out and drink and play video games. That was never a thing. Like I never had to hang out group of friends. With my group of friends, we would build potato cans. We would, uh, you know, make a whole Frisbee golf course, 18 hole Frisbee golf course, uh, in the common area of someone's neighborhood and then make a scoreboard and keep track of our, uh, scores the entire summer and have, you know, month long tournaments. And, uh, you know, we would build websites too. That was another thing we did. I, I some of my closest friends in high school who I'm still very close with, you know, we built websites together and that was part of like our, that was how we hung out making stuff. Um, so I've, I've been making websites as well. And, and I think part of it too, is that Johnny was a couple years ahead of me in school. And so I think, uh, maybe the program had changed slightly as I sort mm-hmm. of followed up behind him. Uh, you know, it's always evolving, but I, I never felt like I was not getting the things I wanted out of, uh, out of the courses and assignments at Micah. Um, first of all, like the main, main thing with Micah, which I assume is true of a lot of art schools is that the joke is that if you, uh, if you do something great, it doesn't matter if it actually had to do with the assignment at all. <laughs> like if they, <laughs> if they assign you a poster and you're like, here's my poster, I made a sculpture and here's why it's like a poster. Um, you know, all, uh, not to support every weird stereotype of art school, but like, that's, that's totally fine. That's, that's yeah. acceptable. So there were times where I had made websites in response to assignments to make publications or whatever. Uh, and that was never like frowned upon by my instructors. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I was just, the, the assignment was to, you know, design a typeface to write a word in, and I would just do it in the wood shop instead of doing it in Illustrator. Oh, okay. That's really cool. Um, and that was always, you know, I, I never ran up against anybody that was like, that, that was not the assignment. You can't make type out of wood or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of my experience, which I, was very different from Johnny's. You know, Johnny invented his own major and took tons of independent studies and, you know, worked, it took, took as few classes as possible, basically, uh, with every, every fiber of his being. Um, which totally worked for him. So, right, so I'm yeah. not going to criticize him. But sometimes he kind of walks around and is like, yeah, Micah was, wasn't accepting of my coolness. And it's like, well, 
maybe you didn't try that hard. No, you know, it, it, that definitely sounds like Johnny again, not in a bad way, but Johnny does, he, he isn't an, uh, an independent thinker and sort of has his own perspective on things. Um, so I could totally see him being like, you know what? I like this. Um, I would like it even more. If it was this way. So if I can make it this way, I will. Yeah. He did. Yeah. He, he, he marches to the beat of his own weird out of tune drum. Yeah. 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 Um, he, him and I are in a basketball league this season, I guess there's like seven or eight. It's pretty fun. Like it's fun because we're all like older dudes that are out of shape. So you game. call yourself an older dude now? What are you, 27? I mean, yeah, I am 27, actually. Spot on. Um, older dude comparatively. Like, there are there's some teams that it feel, I feel like we're playing against, like, 17-year-old kids, the way they just fly up and down the court. Um, yeah, I, I, always huffing, notice now, I always notice now that, like, we are now the age where we are probably older than most professional athletes, and we're definitely older than basically everybody in the Olympics. Yeah. Oh shit. I never thought about that. There's no chance you and I are going to change directions in life and become a great no. insert athletic thing here. It's basically impossible. Yeah, no, we're, we're already, our bodies are already falling apart. And we are seen as the, like, I'm, I'm thinking now back. So I, I grew up playing basketball and football. Um, and every day after school, when it wasn't football season, I'd go to the park in my neighborhood and it was all, we'd all, you know, it was like 15 to 35. Um, but there was this one guy, we called him 240. He was like 40 at the time. And we called him 240 because that's how much he weighed. He was like a bigger dude. Um, and he was like the oldest. But we saw him as like a grandpa. And there was this yeah. other dude, Mike, who was like 25. And we saw him as like not quite a grandpa, but still like. But like full grown adult. Like. Yeah, like old. And now like, you don't feel like a full grown adult, even though you're now older than. Exactly. Adult so, Mike was. Exactly. So when I go to the YMCA in, in uh, my neighborhood in Brooklyn, I go play basketball. I am what I used to make fun of. Yep. Yeah. Aren't we all? (laughs) It's so terrible. Um, All right. So, so Johnny got you an internship and was that the agency he was interning at as well? And then they hired him. Uh, Yeah. He he kind of had a job there. It was weird. The name of the agency was Shaw Jelva. um, And he, yeah, he basically, you know, it was my senior year that, his senior year and my sophomore year that I started working there. And so he worked there that summer with me and we were in the office all together. I went back to school and he had since graduated and he was working there, I think part-time a few days a week or something gotcha. Um, gotcha. as needed as I recall, but I, I don't really know for sure. Um, shortly after he took a job with Adobe and was no longer working there, but that, you know, he didn't work there for long if he was there. Yeah. But like I said, during the school year, because he was so disillusioned with school, he was working there three days a week during yeah. semesters. Yeah. He uh, basically he had, went to school part-time at that point essentially uh he was taking you know the bare minimum of courses and many of them were independent studies he had arranged so he could just make one website across the entire semester and that was his whole independent study he got three credits for it yeah um which you know more power to him again he he twisted that school into whatever he wanted it to be i always wonder why he paid so much money to go there it's like you're just gonna do your own thing why don't you just go do your own thing and not pay tuition for it but you know whatever that's him what did um so you went through Micah, you graduated, I think, or, you know, you didn't say that, all right? I'm making an assumption you graduated. I did uh, graduate, yes. So what did you do after that? Like, how did you apply? I guess what, I, what I'm asking is, what happened in the gap uh, that, like, oh, I got a graphic design degree from Micah, now, I, now I'm in the real world? Um, there was a, it was a very easy transition. So the people from high school I was talking about that I used to mm-hmm. go to Frisbee golf courses and, uh, you know, websites and stuff with um they taught me how to computer program my, my friends were both computer programmers they ended up going to school for computer science basically um and i came down and went to design school we stayed in touch 
And, you know, we actually, actually, we started our first business when we were 16. We, my birthday present from my father, again, in the, in the long history of my parents supporting me unequivocally, uh, my birthday present from him on my 16th birthday was the formation papers uh, that he had had his lawyer write up for our very first company. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. And, and in Pennsylvania, you can be a founder of a company at 16. And I was the first of our group to become 16. So when I turned 16, uh, we had an official LLC. We were making websites for people, basically. Oh, wow. Uh, what, was, uh, what was the name of the LLC? <sighs> Well, cause you, you can either you go did to, ask up front, you asked up front if there's nothing, if there's something I didn't want to talk about and I didn't say this. Um, <laughs> well, you can either go the know, route of just like your name, right. And then DBA. Oh no, that, that, no. First of all, that is not an option when you're 15 years old. Well, yeah, that's you're, not gonna, say. No. you're not going to just make it like your name. That's the most boring old people thing to do in the whole world. Yeah. Um, I have very distinct memories of sitting in my friend Dan's bedroom, uh, after school and us just on like, you know, a domain registration website, looking up every combination that we could think, uh, to try and find a cool name. Yeah. And they were all totally taken. Uh, every, every single thing we thought of. And this was still at the time where like we were young enough and the internet was not what it is now, obviously that it was like shocking to us that everything was taken. But in hindsight, we had like the dumbest ideas in the whole world. Um, the least dumb idea that we actually settled on, uh, was called bonsai studios. Okay. That was the name of our website making company. That's not a terrible um, name. It's not good. <laughs> let's, let's, let's start there. Uh, first of all, we constantly got emails from people that wanted bonsai trees, as you might expect. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And that's just not what we did. Um, and our, our idea was that like, oh, making a website is like tending to a bonsai tree, which is like some weird cultural appropriation shit because we knew nothing about bonsai <laughs> trees. We just thought it was cool uh, and not at all true in any way, especially not the way we were making websites back then. Um, but yeah, it sounded cool. And I spent a whole afternoon like tracing a photo of a bonsai tree with, uh, the pen tool and illustrator to mm-hmm. make like the world's most complicated logo that was good because it was complicated. Right. We were like, sure. look how, look how many lines it is. We're real pros. <laughs> um, but so we started this company when we were 16 and, uh, obviously our dream from every, we, we spent summers, you know, I always worked tons of different part-time jobs. Um, and my other friends didn't, they were kind of, you know, doing this more or less full-time as their job in high school, you know, they didn't need a job. So, uh, we didn't make a ton of money, but you know, we were making money on the side and the dream was maybe someday this can be our actual life. Uh, and then when we graduated, we just did it. Uh, same people plus one other, uh, person I met at Micah was my, one of my roommates for three years there. Oh, wow. Um, Four of us just right out of graduating started friends of the web. And, uh, so basically like, our dream from when we were 16 years old totally came true, which is still something I kind of, you know, try really hard not to take for granted. Yeah. Wow. That's all right. I've got a lot of questions. My mind is churning. Good. You weren't scared to go out on your own. And so no, no, I just told you I was raised by my parents my entire life being told I could do anything. And that is like embedded in me in some deep fundamental way. Like, of course, why not? Why would I be scared? What's the worst that could happen? We go get a job in 10 months because we failed. And okay. You know, I guess that's fair. I mean, so I'm thinking, all right. I mean, so it's, yeah, it's worth talking about. Like, I think it's yeah. worth mentioning that the reason I wasn't scared is because of all of the reasons that my life is privileged and easy, right? Like the worst thing that's going to happen to me is, uh, we fail completely. Uh, you know, we end up breaking a lease on some rental apartment cause we can't pay the rent yeah. and I go get a job somewhere. You know, I was eminently employable. Uh, I have family as a support system I can fall back on. Um, you know, the, the, I was completely safe, right? There was yeah, really no fair. actual risk. That's um, right. Yeah, you aren't going to become homeless or get arrested. No, well, go to jail for any of these things, like breaking lease, something like that. Okay, so that's fair. So, you, so, yeah. so then you understood that you had uh, you had cushion in case you fell. 
Yeah, and I didn't have any like money saved up or anything, but the sure. question was just like, oh, worst case scenario, I like move home where my mother would actually like me to do that. She, <laughs> when I graduated, <laughs> she was like, you sure you don't want to move home? I'm like, mom, most people, most people think that's a sign of you have not done well. Um, so like worst case scenario, <laughs> I move home uh, and I get a job as a graphic designer somewhere or a front end web developer or whatever. Uh, and, you know, I'd be able to make plenty enough money to get back on my feet shortly after. Um, that's fair. So it never really felt like a risk. Doing it with three other people also really helps because I guess that's fair. Well, it also sort of evenly balances the quote unquote risk, right? Like it's not all on you to go get clients and to do all the design and to to do all the development and then to launch the site and service the client, et cetera. Well, it's certainly less lonely. uh, And I think going through anything that may even resemble hardship is always easier with multiple people. So, you know, we, we didn't make any money for the first, you know, three or four months. It actually worked a uh, full-time job at another design studio for the first three months because I didn't have any money saved up and I couldn't afford to pay rent unless I had money. Uh, yep. So I would work, you know, nine to five at another design studio uh, in Baltimore called Post Typography, great design studio. And then I would come home and work from 10 to, you know, two or three in the morning on Friends of the Web stuff because I wanted to pull my own weight, right? Uh, not from 10, I guess from like six, from like dinner time to yeah. late at night. to like pull my own weight. So I was like meeting with other guys we're doing. And another part of like the luck and kind of privilege we had is that the other people I started the company with did have money saved up. They could afford to be like, all right, we're just going to not make money for three months. And, you know, Baltimore rent is super cheap. Uh, we all lived in the same house, uh, not, a, not a big house at all. Um, so it was like a very kind of comfortable way to start something that didn't feel super risky. Um, but yeah, the story I always tell is we started the business right after graduating, actually a couple weeks before technically. So, you know, May or whatever, we sat down and we're like, time to make money. And then when taxes were due uh, from the calendar year from May to December, basically, uh, we hadn't made basically any money. We didn't make enough money to owe taxes. If you make under a certain amount of money, the government's like, no, no, no. We don't need it. You yeah. should keep that. You need this more than we do. Um, and that's where we were. We just owed no taxes the first year, basically. Um, so, yeah, we like barely made our super cheap rent, but it never felt like we were struggling because it was my three best friends and we're hanging out, living together, yeah. making websites. Like, what could, what could possibly be better? Yeah, that's true. And like, you know, I think about this sometimes there were periods, well, in college, I think when I worked like, oh, cause I had financial aid, I had a work study job. Um, I think I'd make like 400 bucks every two weeks. Um, I spend more than that in sometimes a week now. Um, and that's if I'm spending poorly, but I also, I guess the point that I'm making is that I think when we're younger, we're still a little bit naive or at least in clear, like it totally blind to some of the things uh, that could be stressful or could cost a lot of money. So, you know, you're living with your friends, you're living really cheap. <laughs> Hopefully you're still not eating dry ramen noodles. As long as like you guys are having a good time, that's pretty much all that matters. If the money comes, that's great too. Yeah, exactly. Like we were not in a position where it was any real actual pressure. Uh, it, it felt like there was pressure because of course we wanted to succeed. We didn't want to fail, yeah. um, you know, and we, you know, wanted to justify when we were getting ready to start the company, we'd always talk about it being the dream, but around like winter break of senior year, we kind of had a discussion. We're like, all right, this is the dream, but first we should go get real jobs and like get real world experience. I say in big fat air quotes. Yeah. Um, so like one of the guys I started the company with had already accepted a job with a, a big company um, that he was supposed to start at. Uh, I had a couple job offers on the table that were very generous. Uh, that would have been great jobs. Uh, you know, if I could go back and rewind the clock, I thought that I would have changed my mind, but if I had, it's not like I would have I would have been very happy. I would have, you know, still done some some interesting work. Sure. Um, so, so yeah, like we basically got close to graduating. We we're like, well, we're going to take the risk. We should do it while we're younger. 
while we still have a tolerance for living in a whole house that costs $1,200 to rent, that we're going to mm-hmm. split four ways. Um, you know, we should do those things while we're still young and able to handle it. None of us have mortgages. None of us have, uh, you know, families to support. Uh, so yep. let's just do it now. And if we fail, we fail and go get jobs. And, you know, maybe we're behind a year from our peers in the rest of life. But all in all, it's barely even a risk. So it didn't feel like that. Didn't feel so courageous. How'd you guys come up with the name then? <laughs> I asked because the last time you came up with a name, it was, uh, well, from what you were saying, it was probably not your, your best moment. No, uh, naming is something I'm very keenly interested in. And I like to think I've gotten a lot better at it. Um, but it's still very difficult, right? And it's especially yeah. difficult when you're trying to name something that this is supposed to represent like the four of us, right? We all had to feel ownership over this thing. And it's very hard to feel ownership over something when someone else gives it to you on a plate. So um, I was doing most of the work to try and come up with names and we had, you know, come up with a ton of different ones and, you know, found, it was much easier this time to find dom- domains that were available, I think, which is a good sign. Meant that mm-hmm. the things we were naming things were not stupid stuff. It was actually <laughs> novel ideas that other people hadn't actually thought of before. Yeah, And we, we settled on this because... Um, we wanted it to, it was part aspirational, right? Like we wanted to have the company be the kind of company that would do work uh, that would kind of somehow benefit the industry and be like visible in the industry kind of publicly. Um, and I say it's aspirational because we really haven't followed through on that. Uh, but the idea that we were going to, you know, release open source projects that would help other companies that were doing work, the idea that we would make tools for other studios and designers and uh, software developers that wanted to like, you know, work independently as freelancers that we have done a little bit of. Um, We had talked about running running a blog and having a bunch of articles up there. Like part of it was aspirational. We really wanted to be the kind of company that would like, uh, you know, anchor a community to some degree. Um, So the friends, the friends of the web, it it felt like, you know, felt like all those nonprofits where it's like, you know, the friends of Patterson park. And it's like the group of old people that, you know, watch over the park uh, or, you know, the friends of, uh, you know, some monument somewhere, uh, you know, so it was kind of like that. Like we wanted to be like a loose coalition of people that, uh, cared about this industry and wanted to like be caretakers of it. Um, and it was also more, uh, blatantly just because we were friends and <laughs> we were going to be making websites. And so, <laughs> yeah. uh, it kind of had an interesting double meaning in that sense. And, uh, it was unpretentious. It wasn't like an, a made up word, which I always hated, uh, you know, just like weird portmanteau names or, uh, it was just kind of, you know, a little phrase, um, and I really like now that it gets abbreviated to friends all the time. All of our clients just call us the friends, uh, which I think is, is great. Yeah, it's a, um, it's, a, it's a good and fitting nickname. Yeah, I like it a lot. And uh, I had a hard time convincing the other three people originally that was a good name we should go with. Mm-hmm. And what I actually sold them on eventually was that we could abbreviate it FTW, uh, which is something that when we first started out, we thought was great. We wanted to do all the time. And uh, for various reasons, we've abandoned doing that because I think it's kind of cheap and cheesy. Uh, but it's kind of funny to me that the thing that I used to sell it to the other people is now something we don't do anymore. Yeah. Well, it was, it's a, like a fleeting thought kind of thing. That's really cool. You know, I, I don't know personally that I would have ever had the balls to do that. I think I'm trying to think of, you know, it's interesting because I think, uh, I, I thought about risks differently. Um, granted, you know, we grew up in two different places had two different interests and all these environmental differences mm-hmm. and stuff but i'm still in awe that you and your friends were self-aware i say self-aware aware enough at the time to be like hey uh why don't we start a company and not totally think it's like a terrible idea 
also, I guess for, for the- <laughs> it's a thing you can be in admiration of, but it's also, you know, it's a sign of we were much more arrogant than we had any right to be. Uh, like we were not. Which correct. is not a bad thing for, for, <laughs> for what you guys did, right? That was probably your, uh, your coat of armor almost, right? Like that's what protected you from any uh, naysayers or negativity. I, I do think it's important in, especially in the consulting world, probably in the software world, in the business world, to carry yourself with a level of confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that level of confidence can either be you actually knowing you're actually having an honest evaluation of your skills, but mm-hmm. knowing that you need to like focus on the good things and be optimistic when you're presenting yourself to other people and kind of you know elevate that a little bit when you're talking to the outside world. Mm-hmm. Or it can come from you having an arrogant, not true evaluation of your own skills, which is where we were, and actually thinking that's how good you are. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's not... A, always a great thing it, it served us well it, it was it was a, certainly an important aspect in starting the business yeah uh, you know like i'm the kind of person where i could walk into meetings with you know clients uh that were running big companies and i had enough swagger to like tell them you're doing this wrong and bad and i was mm-hmm. probably wrong but uh there were certainly instances where that swagger was something that got us clients uh like there was it was a good reason that worked um but i don't think it was founded necessarily right? i don't yeah. you know, look back on that and say oh that was that was the right thing to do, but it certainly yeah. helped the business. So did that ever bite you in the butt? Um, no, honestly, it hasn't. Um, I'm trying to think we, we I, I'm very happy to say that we've been in business now for almost five years and we've never had anything go really bad. Um, you know, we've never like the, the worst stories we can tell are like one time, one person didn't pay an invoice for like four grand. Uh, and it's like, boohoo. That's not great. Yeah. Um, you know, one time, one client was kind of mad about this thing, but it was a matter of all these other kind of pieces of context. Um, no, I can honestly say that we, we've been very, very careful. I mean, believe it or not, at our roots, we're kind of, the four of us are conservative. Uh, like we don't, not politically conservative, but like actually conservative in terms of how comfortable we are taking risks in terms of, uh, you know, what level we'd be comfortable with a company at before we start hiring people. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things were like much more careful than I observe other people running businesses to be. Um, I think a lot of people are like so confident their thing is going to grow and become great that they'll kind of overreach themselves from an early stage. Now we never really did that. Um, we've, you know, waited to get an office for two years until we had the entire rent amount for the office saved up in the bank account for like the next 18 months or something. Oh, wow. Um, were you, because, so then at that point, were you guys still working out of the house that you were sharing? Yeah. So for the first year we worked out of a small row house in Baltimore. Um, I don't remember exactly what the rent was, but it was split five ways. Actually, it was the four of us. And then, uh, one of my partner's girlfriends lived with us. Um, and split five ways. My rent, I think came out to like 300 bucks or something. That's amazing. Um, so that was a nice house. It wasn't a bad place, but it was small. So we had an office and we had a kitchen and we had a dining room slash conference room. And we had bedrooms. <laughs> if you were sitting down in that house, you were sitting at the conference room where you were sitting at your desk. Yeah. Um, there was really no room for like anything else, uh, which was part partially good starting the business because we just worked a ton that first yep. year because there was really nothing else to do. Um, but of course, you know, long term, that's not the healthiest way to, to live sure. your life. So we worked there for a year. And at the end of the year, the business was starting to pick up a little bit. And so we thought about getting an office. uh, Mm -hmm. And we also wanted to move houses because we outgrown a little bit. So we had like two separate budgets we had made. We had made a house budget and we had made an office budget. Um, And both of them were frankly a little low. And so we couldn't find an office uh, within our budget really anywhere um, in the city uh, that was even close to acceptable. And we really couldn't find a house we liked within our house budget. 
And then uh, along came this one house that came up for rent a few blocks from where we were currently living that was just this enormous house. Uh, it was huge. Uh, it was like 4,000 square feet. Oh my uh, gosh, It was like an old huge. mansion that someone had a big giant row house with four stories and a roof porch and uh, like a separate uh, separate little house, like a, you know, a little carriage house for like servants behind the first house that was like yeah. redone done into a new apartment. Um, this huge place uh, that actually happened to be what we had set aside for our housing budget and our office budget combined. We're like, well, oh, wow. I guess we're just going to keep living and working in the same place, but uh, do it in much nicer terms. Yeah. Um, so we moved in this big, beautiful house and uh, they had our, they had our office in there and that had its own space. And we had, you know, we could finally get a couch because we had a space to like a living room now. Um, and we were there for two years actually. Um, and we had, a year and a half into that, we moved into the office we're in now. And so we had, we finished living in that house for six months without the office there. Um, but yeah, for I guess two and a half years, we were working out of the same place we were living, which uh, I don't recommend just for personal health. <laughs> if you're, oh, I can imagine. Not going out of the house for, for an extended period of time is uh, never good for your, also, uh, your body. I would imagine it was probably hard to have some kind of a separation between work and personal life too. Yeah, that was a thing that, um, like, the, so the, the stress that we felt from starting the company, at least that I felt, um, was not what most people think. Most people think it's like, oh, you're going out on your own. What if you fail? What if you can't make enough money? Blah, blah, blah. For all the reasons you talked about, that was not really a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was really stressed about was I had basically taken all the things important to me and put them in one big basket. And I was like, I sure hope I don't drop this basket <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. uh, I've gone and tied my career up with my best friends. Yep. Uh, so if something goes wrong in either of those spheres, it may take down the other one. Uh, we've all decided to live together. So, uh, if we, if we all of a sudden start hating each other, uh, it's going to ruin every other aspect of our lives. That's not work. Uh, we won't be able to, you know, eat dinner and do things normally, uh, yep. and not be sort of crazy. Um, so I, I was like just emotionally exhausted from, you know, thinking about that and, sure. and not, not worrying so much, but, uh, just being conscious of the fact that like everything was all together. Um, was that something that the year of the partners shared uh, sort of feelings in? Because I imagine you probably weren't the only one thinking about that. But did you guys ever discuss those things? Um, not not that uh, not so openly. Um, I, I think I'm more likely to share my feelings than most of the people that I started the company with. Uh, mm-hmm. Great dudes, obviously, they are my best friends. Uh, but they, uh, you know, they're less likely to have a feeling like that. Probably, um, maybe they're just less worried about it. Uh, but all, you know, all in all, like it worked great. Like people. <laughs> We, people always joke that we were like, you know, a big four person married couple uh, because we basically like we, we'd work all day, uh, you know, and we wouldn't get mad at each other. We'd never fight basically ever. Uh, we would all cook dinner together every night uh, and sit down to a nice dinner and then go do things together. And like, you know, we'd be dating people and I, I would have this feeling of like, oh, man, I guess I could go on a date, but then I won't be hanging out with my friends anymore. And people would be like, what are you talking about? You spend 24 hours a day with these people. You don't want to go out on like a three hour date because you might, you might miss something fun. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of don't like, <laughs> I really like hanging out with these guys. It's really fun. It's um, like a, uh, it's a family. You got to choose that everything. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it really was. Um, and you know, moving out of the house with those, now we live separately, uh, and moving out of the house with those guys was like a really emotional moment for me. Like, yeah, that was, uh, they're, they're very much a family to me. Um, do you and your partners still hang out as much as you did? Um, well, obviously it's nowhere near as much as you did when you lived together, but now that you don't live together and you only see, I mean, I can imagine you probably don't only see each other in the office. Um, no, I mean, the office is still, we obviously we see each other every day to work. Um, and it doesn't, 
feel like just a professional relationship. Like I know mm-hmm. it's an office. I know we're supposed to be working, but we still talk about things that are not work, obviously. And it's yep. still like we have to see each other every day in that sense. Um, so yeah, we still see each other very regularly, uh, you know, outside of the office. Um, it's not obviously what it was. You can't really compare the things, but yeah, we're, we're still very, very close. Uh, That's awesome. Obviously. I, it's, uh, it's refreshing to hear a, um, a story that is uh, in the beginning ignorant to the premise of risk and then understanding that, no, there was actually some risks, but we sort of ignored them for the time being. And that really helped, in my opinion, it sounds like that probably helped you guys succeed. Uh, Cause I feel like, and, and I know I've, I've talked about this a bit, uh, but I feel like, you know, if I said to someone at work, Hey, I'm going to go start my own thing. They're going to be like, well, how are you going to get clients? Well, how are you going to, how are you going to pay for an office and all that kind of stuff? And it sounds like you guys, those are all good questions though. Yeah, <laughs> Those they, are good they, questions we should they, have asked ourselves. Yes uh, and no, though. I, I think those are the questions that probably uh, prevent people from doing what you and your friends did. I well, think I, the I idea of having fact, fun. Yeah. I found out after the fact that most people don't start consulting companies until they have their first client, which of course makes total sense. Like yeah. you find somebody that's willing to pay you for something and then you make a company to do that and then you keep doing it after that project ends. Yeah. We just started a company with literally no, no clients. So yeah. like for two months, we just sat down and made our own projects and worked on our own website and, you know, hoped that someone would hire us without really doing any actual marketing per se. Um, we, 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 we kind of got lucky. I always tell people that, uh, to say that it's, um, obviously I think we have done a decent job. Like I don't, <laughs> like it's, it's been five years. The company's continued to grow. Um, we haven't really upset anybody. Like I'm, I'm proud of what we've done, but it's worth noting that it's basically the easiest business you could possibly hope to start, right? Like you have no, upstart costs. We already had computers and software. Yep. That's all we needed. It was a computers and software and a table to put the computer on. Uh, and we were able to do our work. Uh, there was like, you know, the, the amount you can charge somebody for this kind of work is insane right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, just the, just the, the demand. And it's always, it's always been pretty high too. Well, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very short history we have. So to say yeah. it's always been, you know, something that's so lucrative, uh, I, th- I think is not necessarily a trend we can point to yet, but Certainly, you know, when we started the company, that was kind of like, I would consider it like the heyday of like Y Combinator and people just giving a million billion dollars to every single person that had like a somewhat decent idea that was a white man that wanted to make it. Um, so there was like lots of paying clients around. They're willing to pay high rates. Uh, like I, I sometimes I think about how hard it would be to like run a restaurant. Like you ever think about the economics of like you go in and it's you terrible. spend $7 on a BLT and with that $7, they pay the wait staff, they buy the ingredients for the sandwich, they pay for the lights and the heat and the cooling in that restaurant, they pay the taxes on the thing they're selling you, they pay the property taxes on the building they own or the rent that they're renting the building for. Yep. Uh, all of that comes out of your $7 for your sandwich. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, you know, for, for what it's worth, though, with restaurants, uh, you know, they, they charge three to four times what it costs to make that thing. Well, of course, um, but like, uh, but that still seems crazy to me. Like, so what yeah, does it cost true. for us to make a website? It costs nothing. I sit here, I make it. Uh, there's like, there's yeah, no ingredients. Right. Yep. There's no ingredients. There's very few utilities involved. There's no, uh, there's very, yeah, there's very few sunk cost prior to making the thing within a restaurant or any brick and mortar. You think about Lululemon, right? When I'm talking about like the, the retail yoga clothing store that's like down the block from me before mm-hmm. they even put any product in there, they've already sunk hundreds of thousands of dollars on a down payment or not a down payment, but a security deposit for that location. And that's before yeah. they've sold anything. And we don't, we don't have to do that. Yeah. And then like, for me, sometimes, you know, it feels difficult to run our business mm-hmm. and we charge like hundreds of dollars an hour to sit behind a computer and just type things. So it's like, 
<laughs> how, how can it be hard to do this? Like the idea of running any other kind of business is terrifying to me. Like the proposition of trying to figure out the math of like how much to sell a sandwich for to actually make a decent amount of money uh, seems impossible. It seems like an impossibility um, because what we do is basically as easy as it could be to run a business and it still feels really hard almost every day. Yeah, that's uh, uh, one of the reasons why I've never uh, properly provided or baked cookies as a, a commercial enterprise only because I'm too afraid. Well, afraid. I don't know enough and I'm not interested in the risk of what it would cost upfront to do all that kind of stuff. And sort of, I know some the, people with, that do that are bakers of cookies uh, for a living and yeah, oh, it's really? crazy. I don't know how they do it. Yeah. I have friends here in Baltimore that, oh, super uh, cool. that run a little bakery and we have their snacks delivered to our office every week. Um, and actually, my, my girlfriend's uh, mom is also a baker in D.C. It does the same thing. She runs a little, little yeah, like, local like, bakery. But yeah, like I've I've seen the math for, <laughs> like you know, you go into some uh, you know coffee shop and you buy you know the artisanal local bakery cookies and there's like you know four of them for six bucks and you're like this is a total ripoff six bucks for cookies. Uh, but if you actually do the math on buying decent chocolate and like decent ingredients and baking the things in the city in which you live, that's about as little as you can possibly sell those cookies for and hope to make any kind of profit. Oh yeah. I do. Um, Chips Ahoy are basically made of sawdust and like injected yeah. into a cookie shaped mold uh, and then shipped <laughs> over from China or wherever. Yeah. Uh, so like, that's why yeah, you so can get cheap. Chips Ahoy a lot cheaper. It's basically not even the same product. No. Yeah, uh, exactly. So like I do these things called beta tastings and I've only done two, like once a year because they end up actually taking a lot of, I don't know how you're, girlfriend's mom if you're still with her um her mother or your friends do this it's it's baffling because uh this is a random tangent but with computers we can automate things but baking you can automate to a point but you still have to bake it like you still have to turn these ingredients into dough then make a cookie then cook it check it you know and i'm sure there's some automation there too but it's a lot more it's harder work but um with beta tastings i'll I'll make a hundred cookies for a, a four or five hour, just like hang out with a bunch of my friends. And it is painstaking. I do not wish that upon anybody because I'll spend a day and a half prepping everything yeah. to then bake them for, you know, 20 minutes at a time. And Oh God, it's so much. It's fun. It is fun. And uh, similar, I would argue and say it's similar to the joy you may have had making physical things with wood is probably the joy I get from baking a cookie and then having someone be like, Oh my God, this cookie tastes so good. Uh, so it's definitely yeah. worth it, but it, yeah, fuck, I, it's actually, hard. I love cooking. Cooking is a big thing for me now. Yeah. Um, probably for the past three or four years, I've gotten really into it. I've come a long way from the eating raw ramen out of the ramen package during, uh, <laughs> during Our sculpture class, class yeah. days. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And like, to me, the crazy thing about, I don't know if this is where you wanted the conversation to go, but to me, the crazy thing about all the, you know, companies that sell things for a small amount of money, you know, the chips, ahoys of the world, mm-hmm. uh, is, like that product really can't exist without taking advantage of, you know, hundreds of people along the way. <laughs> like it's just not possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it's true. Like, um, you know, my, my friends that run the bakery here where they sell the best chocolate chip cookies in all of Baltimore. And it is, you get a package of four or five for like yeah. six or $7. Are they like hefty cookies too? Or they're, are, they're good cookies. They're, they're oh, heavy. They're, they're, they're okay. a big cookie. Um, it, it's, it's worth it. Like the cookies are great. Uh, you're paying more than a dollar for, for a cookie. Uh, and that's, it's totally worth it. Um, but like even them, like I've I've seen the math for how they like calculate their prices and like they really can't even afford to pay somebody what I would consider to be a decent wage to like be one of their like bakers because of how little money they make off of selling cookies for six dollars. Yeah. So I look at that and I extrapolate and go, okay, how many 
people <laughs> have to be working in the shittiest conditions under like yeah. the bare minimum, uh, you know, completely unacceptable amount of money to like make an Oreo exist. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's very real feeling to me. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you think, uh, well, I guess the first question is what is the name of that bakery? Oh, uh, I'll happy to buzz market them. Um, they're called Kinderhook Snacks. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they're based out of Baltimore and they sell things in like the Baltimore DC area, maybe oh, some cool. things down in DC. So uh, also, also on their website, I think. Oh, nice. If they sell on the website, then I'm definitely, which is actually even harder to do, uh, because like food They laws? do sell on the website. Oh, I'm totally going to get some of these. Yeah, that, that makes, so they get, uh, your friends know way more about this. So I'm briefly going to speak on it because I don't know that much. But yeah, you're a cookie fiend. Everyone knows this about you. So yeah, that's true. But part of the reason why I haven't done the cookie stuff is because there's, I mean, luckily uh, cookies are considered non-perishable goods. So you don't need the same kind of license. You don't necessarily need to, you can bake cookies in your home kitchen and sell them commercially because mm-hmm. uh, they don't need to be stored in a the refrigerator. They don't go so I didn't actually know that. Uh, that, that might be state to state. I know that is the case in New York. Uh, so if you, I think you, I'm imagining you've been to New York, but we have this thing called Smorgasburg, which like a big, I have been to New York. Yes. Okay. Um, I've thought about trying to do Smorgasburg and I was like, well, if I do this, let me, let me do some research. See how much it's actually going to cost me because Smorgasburg requires that you have all the licensing. They don't provide any of that. They are a marketplace, essentially the same way that Etsy is a marketplace, but looking into it. So yeah, cookies in New York are non-perishable goods. So you can, you don't need like an industry, uh, like industry grade, uh, kitchen to do the, mm-hmm. do these kind of things. And you just need to be sanitary and, you know, clean all this kind of stuff. Um, that's great. But, but to sell them across lines, totally different. It, it, it just blows up the regulations even more. And it's so much more costly. Well, um, I assume Kinderhook has done their homework. I hope at least, oh, yeah, uh, because I'm, I'm telling all of you now listening to this to go online and buy their salted chocolate chip cookies. Uh, which yeah, the package one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's like twelve cookies for fifteen bucks, and it is that's totally a really worth good it. Price. Totally worth it. You I, you will. I also recommend the boozy brown butter blondies. Uh, the rest of the stuff is good too, but those two are the best. Anyway, um, yeah, like uh, those those the economics of that, and kind of realizing how many, and then like the, also like the scale of the business, right? Because the people that run Chips Ahoy, that run the Bisco or whatever, they make shit tons of money. They're rich yeah. as hell. Yeah. Uh, and so in order for them to not only sell a cookie that costs basically nothing and also get rich off of it, uh, like it's even further yeah. infractions of human rights and of, uh, you know, like just acceptable business practices as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, that, that's, that's like the same thing to me, like to kind of bring it all back around, like thinking about how those systems work and like what that product means in the world. And it's like its impact on everything. Yeah. Uh, that's designed to me. That's the exact same reason why I care about thinking about like a typography system, like just the idea that you put a system in place and then it reaches beyond the original context it was unleashed into to like touch all sorts of things and have yeah, like that makes kind sense. of rippling effects. Um, um, what, what that makes me think of, there was a, um, and after this, I have a few questions because I don't want to keep you too much longer. Uh, we've I'm happy really... to chat all the way up until two o'clock. Cool, 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 good. Um, I saw there was a panel. I don't know if you know about the designer debate club, this dude, Keenan Cummings, who was on the podcast previously, actually. Um, I know Keenan. Oh, you, okay, cool. So he does the designer debate club and he'll have a topic and he'll have like really good people speaking about it. I was and part he, of the very first one of those. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Um, but he did one, uh, that said, can designers be c- CEOs or something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I think that was the topic. I want to see if I can find it actually, just to make sure. That I'm sounds right. Wrong. That sounds like one of them. Yeah. D- uh, designers should lead companies, I believe was the, uh, topic. 
at hand. Sure. But what, what was interesting is that people were like, no, designers are people who push pixels around. Um, and at no point, I, w- I was sort of surprised. It didn't come until the end, but no point throughout the discussion up until like the rebuttals at the very end did someone say, when you think about uh, what we're talking about, it's two separate things. You're talking about designer design as a task, right? And then design as not a task. And I'll try to elaborate on that. Elaborate on that. Uh, the people who were against designers being CEO CEOs were thinking of design as a task. So, oh, you make our website look good. You make collateral. You make print material, etc. And then the designers are saying you can. We're more so talking about the idea of like. Everything, when you sit down and think critically about something and you think about process and, and the flow of how this company should run or how what's the best way, you know, you think about your friends um, and their bakery, what's the best way to source the greatest ingredients we can get at the lowest cost to provide cookies that aren't overly expensive? That's design, right? You're designing a process. You're designing a business, mm-hmm. which um, I think more people, and, and the point that I'm making with all that is it sounds like you think that way. And well, I feel like design is coming into design is not pixels anymore. It is more so uh, thinking through processes, thinking through systems, things that aren't style guides, right? See, so uh, this is a very interesting kind of direction. Um, I would say that for me, design has always been that, always been yeah. systems, always been making things. I don't think necessarily there's any evidence that like that's happening on a broader scale or that if a designer that does just want to like be involved in doing like brand identity work and like picking mm-hmm. colors and doing, you know, pixel pushing for, for lack of a better term. I don't think that's going away. I don't think that, sure. that person is wrong and it's like behind the times and, you know, can't keep up. Um, I just think it's a different sort of approach and a different like value you get out of doing the work. Um, in, in the situation of like that particular debate, uh, that's the kind of thing where I would argue like a CEO is already a job. Like the CEO should be the CEOs. Like that's leading a company is the thing that involves so many things uh, that a designer may or may not have. Uh, it involves sure. like a charisma and ability to communicate with people uh, an ability to compromise uh, an ability to manage stress and to manage situations that, uh, you know, to, to be the person that knows all the things that could be or possibly are going wrong all the time uh, and still like, you know, function as a person that uh, takes a very particular set of skills. Um, so I always find myself playing devil's advocate in basically every argument. Like I, I think I, I could, this is something I actually told Keenan when he was organizing the first debate club. Uh, the first, the very first one was about should designers code. Um, and I told him, I was like, you can put me on either side of this thing. I was like, I will argue passionately uh, for either side of this uh, argument. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like I could just, you know, ultimately I think what it comes down to is that it doesn't actually matter. And whatever you want to do is what you want to do, which is why I feel like I can make an argument for either side. Um, but yeah, so for me, design has always been about that. Uh, and that's what I'm interested in. Um, but I don't think that should empower designers with the arrogance to think that they're the ones that are going to lead everything and invent every good system. Uh, because being a CEO or being a, you know, a president of a company is a, just, is a discrete separate thing. Uh, and sure you might be good at that. You might care about things we could label as design. Uh, but also you might be good at that and not care about anything we label as design or, you know, vice versa. So I don't know. Um, for me, like design is like the work I do at Friends of the Web, which, you know, we don't have any actual hierarchy in the uh, in the company, really. There's four of us that founded it. Now we have six or seven employees, uh, but we don't, um, it's not like, there's no CEO. There's no, but there's no one person that makes the decisions. Everything's got to be like kind of unanimously decided. Um, but I will say that I am often the one that is trying to like figure out 
how to change policies and like, you know, starting things off. Um, so like, I, I do think a lot about the company as a entity and as an organism and how to change and improve it. Um, which I think is probably the job in most other companies of like the CEO or somebody. Um, and to me, it's very much about design, right? Like how do we put some system in place such that the best people, uh, that could possibly work with us will be, would want to work with us, right? How do we get the best designers, best developers, the yep. people that are doing the most interesting work, um, to want to have a job here. Uh, and how do we do that given that we can never hope to pay anywhere near as much as any product company ever, because sure. uh, we don't have that kind of cash flow. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's a question. Um, how do we set up our relationships with our clients such that we continue to get a diverse quality and quantity of work? Um, because it's very, very easy in consulting to end up making one good thing. And then you just get hired by everybody else that wants you to make that same thing for them over yep. and over again. Um, and there's good reasons that happens, right? Like you're actually better at making the second app for restaurants than you were at making the first app for restaurants. So of course the people that make apps for restaurants want to hire you. Uh, but I don't want to be the kind of company that makes one thing over and over again for a million reasons. Yep. So how do we actually set up our relationships and talk about our work and talk about our process in a way that promotes different kinds of things there. Um, and to me, like when I first started the company, like all the business stuff just felt like a chore, like, Oh, we have to set up these formation documents and we have to have a contract that we send to people and we have to review these NDAs and this paperwork is just so stupid. It's getting in the way of the design work that I love. Uh, mm-hmm. And now it's like, that is kind of the design work that I love, right? Like if we're going to have an NDA, how do I write an NDA that is sane and legible and anybody can read it and understand what they're actually agreeing to. And it's not asking something absurd of either party. Um, if we're going to have a contract, if we're going to have uh, you know any of these things, if we're going to pay people wages, how do we come up with a way of paying them that is fair and flexible, uh, that actually you know matches up with what we think they should be paid for? Um, that's all interesting challenges to me that I find way more interesting right now than I do websites. Like websites are fine, they're fun, whatever. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of that. And then to kind of talk to your point too, I'll just, again, there's a reason I have a podcast is because I just will talk forever. Um, (laughs) That's good. No, I like this. But also to get back to your point of has design kind of changed? Um, I'll reiterate my first point and say that I don't think that the designers that just want to make beautiful things or make practical things, I don't think their job is going away. I don't think they're behind the times. I don't think they're missing something. But I do think that the reason why people are talking about systems and, uh, you know, politics and economics and all these things in the same conversations as we're talking about graphic design is because specifically of websites and apps. Um, Mm -hmm. We we have this language of typography, of color, of composition, of things we've been, we've taught ourselves for the past hundred years uh, that, you know, all kind of circle around how to like take a flat surface and do something with it. Uh, Whether that's a marketing campaign, a poster, uh, whatever. And those skills were always good at one thing, which was basically like, make this look good, maybe communicate a message. The, the most I think you would really credit graphic design for prior to, let's say like 1990, is like really sending a message strongly. Uh, like, like the yeah. best graphic design work, that's, that's the most it could possibly do, was send a strong message. Uh, yeah. And now, that exact same language, right? The same skills you're taught in graphic design, one about composition, about color, about typography, about all these other kinds of like technical things about the industry those things now are being used on websites, which are way more powerful. Uh, you can do mm-hmm. so much more with a website that you can ever do with a poster in a way that nobody can really argue against. Um, and so that same language that used to be, okay, let's make sure that 
uh, people know when the starting time of this movie is, is now, okay, let's make sure people know uh, that they don't currently have health insurance and we need to sign them up for one, right? And this yeah. is the button they click to sign up for health insurance uh, or make sure that uh, they understand that they're agreeing to a legal thing by clicking on this uh, checkbox and going to the next screen um, or to allow them to run a business, right? If, you, if you're working, if you have an eBay store, uh, the eBay website is your entire means of, of running your business. Yep. Uh, and that's way more than a poster could ever do. Um, so I think naturally what's happened is some people that, care about those things aesthetically or care about those things in terms of just, I think a lot of designers are just detail oriented, right? And the idea that uh, someone would think about the typography behind something or think about, you know, the layout of, you know, a, a simple poster or a sign or something uh, is something that they get, they get excited about. Um, I think a lot of those people are finding themselves going, okay, well now that same attention to detail allows me to like tap into this whole other thing that gives me much more reach and much more potential for impact. Um, and that's the other thing that I would say drives me is like, I really care about making things on a selfish level. Like I want to just make stuff like I, I'll whittle spoons out of wood just to like have them around because I just like making things. Uh, that's a selfish part of it. And then like, I also really, I would be very dissatisfied with my life if I didn't feel like I was having some kind of impact, uh, sure. on the world at large and some kind of positive impact. Um, so for some people that's maybe, you know, taking on work for ethical clients, right. Only working with you know, environmentally friendly nonprofits or whatever. Um, for me right now, it's running a company that offers people great jobs that, uh, you know, allows them to live happy lives. Um, like to sure. me, the kind of impact that that provides is greater than the impact we'd be able to provide, uh, at least in terms of my emotional feeling about it, than if we were just to be like, okay, we're only working with nonprofits now. Uh, like that would be good. Sure, that would be a positive impact. But, you know, I can very viscerally see uh, among our employees like, oh, this is, a, this is a thing we're doing that is good in helping people. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Now the the language of graphic design has more reach than it ever did before, and with that reach comes responsibility and comes understandings of other industries outside of graphic design. Like you have to understand something about marketing and about you know running a company and leadership to do a lot of the things that you know we really want to do as designers is to make these kind of decisions. How long did I just blabber on for? That was, that was a good, that could have been a conference talk. Let's I think see, that was, uh, <laughs> that was really good though, man. That was very insightful. You know, it's, I don't know that minutes. That was good. <laughs> um, it's very clear that you've thought about this, you know, um, which I, can't help I would argue uh, it's, it's interesting. And I, I think this will be a good stopping point. Um, because I think, <laughs> well, well, I say that not in a bad that way. Was because good. It's, that was good. I'm glad you talked about it. We're going to stop now, but that was good. <laughs> Well, because it's clear that you and I could talk about this for probably three hours recorded. Um, it's clear that you've thought about it. I think, I think what's, what is a point of contention for me and granted I'm on the other side of things, right? Like I am a front end developer, but, uh, in the world of front and this is a brief tangent in the world of front end development, there's two types of front end developers. There's more design side front end developers, and then there's more programming side front end developers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm probably the more programming side. And if I'm not now, that's what I want to be. Right. Um, but for what it's worth, it seems like oftentimes now uh, there are a lot of people who understand how powerful design is, but do not think about it as, uh, as in detail as you, you sort of just outlined. Um, so it's, it's good to know that there's people out there that do those kind of things. Uh, I think the scary part though, is that there's a lot of people who are like, and, and I'm, I'm speaking in very broad strokes. Uh, people are like, design's going to save the world. We're going to solve a bunch oh, yeah. of problems. Yeah. People love but, saying but it's that like, kind of shit. 
Yeah, that's like you fucking you're you're a designer or you're a developer for a uh, a laundry startup in San Francisco. You're not saving the world. You're not, you know what I mean. So it's like it 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 is very refreshing for someone to understand the implication of design, not so much the design that you're doing day to day, but the premise of design, sort of what it originally, what its original intention was, and and sort of what its intention has evolved into being. And it sounds like at the very least, you guys under. If not the entire company, at least you understand that, and it definitely sounds like you're trying to instill that um, in the work that you do. So, I mean, it, I'm not I'm not saying that you are a good guy and they're all bad guys, uh, but it's it's really nice to know that someone thinks about this as a much more holistic being, right? This this big, large, like moving thing uh, than just sort yeah. of getting on Twitter and ranting. And that's just a perspective thing, right? Like, I also yeah. totally understand how somebody else who is you know a professional. Uh, marketer can look at the world and say like, well, everything is just marketing, right? Like leading, being a CEO is just marketing. Like I think they are exactly as justified in saying that as I am saying that, you know, design is everything more or less. Uh, like like we're really starting to, but it's just a, a matter of how you look at the world. It's like a perspective thing. Uh, yeah, that's fair. Writers could say that. Uh, business people have been saying it their entire lives that everything is business. <laughs> so that's not new for them. <laughs> yeah, um, they, They're very used to thinking that. Um, but yeah, so that's that. Yeah. Um, all right. So there's three questions at the end of each episode that I ask. Um, all right. First of those three, knowing, having all this knowledge that you have now, if you went in a time machine and you can give your younger self some advice, what would it be? How young? Uh, your choice. It's your time machine. Um, you could tell yourself to stop making such violent things. Uh, no, I don't if you wanted to. <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I didn't do it because I was violent per se. Like it was the like I never like shot well, the things at people. It was like the creation of the thing that was uh, compelling okay. to me. Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. So it was um, more. So you were. It sounds like you were more interested in the making than actually making to use. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, that wasn't okay. like I didn't have like practical uses for a whole, uh, you know, armory of rubber band guns. And the Gatling gun <laughs> took like forty five minutes to reload because you had to put every single rubber band back on you know, one at a time, <laughs> and you cranked it once and it would fire them all. Um. No, it was just because I was making things for the sake of making things, and it just yeah. happened to be a compelling thing to make. Um, if there was any, I, I don't have a ton of regrets in my life, which is maybe just indicative of a lack of thoughtfulness of all the things I've screwed up. But uh, if I could go back in time and tell myself something, the um, when I started Friends of the Web with my my three buddies, and also when we started the podcast on the grid, which was about a year later, um, the idea that like diversity or fairness or like equity in those things we were starting would ever become an issue to me. It was not even close to on the radar. Uh, like we started the company with four white dudes that are the whitest of white dudes you can possibly imagine. Um, and at the time that was not even a thing that was on anybody's radar. Uh, but now I realize in hindsight how difficult it is after you've started something like that mm-hmm. to make the case that your culture is one that is welcoming to everybody. Uh, and so like now I really want to run the kind of company that can be, you know, an example uh, for how things could be in technology, which is so often such a totally messed up industry. Um, and it's just really hard to do given the sort of context under which the company was started. Same goes for the podcast, right? Like on the grid, three white dudes, whatever. Um, it's not that we shouldn't make the show. It's not that three white dudes don't have something interesting to say to each other, but we're so inherently limited in what we can talk about. Uh, and in sort of the perspective on the things we talk about just by the nature of who we are, which is the thing that I was not at all 
even beginning to think about uh, at the time we started the show or the, or the podcast or the, or the company. So if I could go back in time and tell myself something, uh, I, I know that me going back in time, I'd be talking to me from the past, and that guy is really stubborn uh, and is not going to be open to the idea that he's missing something. So I would try and tell him something about, uh, I guess I would do anything to try and convince him that possibly there are things that don't matter to him now that will soon matter to him a lot, and decisions he's making in the past are going to affect his ability to yeah. impact those things. That's fair. You know, it's interesting because I think it's uh, the stuff that you talked about, uh, so gender, race, equality uh, in the workplace, at large in society and those kind of things. It's it's a very poignant topic at the moment. Um, the thing that I've found to be very interesting, and I totally understand that you and I may have differing views on this, uh, mm-hmm. and then we may have differing views from people who are listening uh, or people in the world in general. What I've found to be very interesting is I think um, we're at a point where and what I'm saying could be taken very poorly, uh, which is why I'm somewhat hesitant to say it, but I'll say it anyways, cause it's my podcast. Um, <laughs> the, the, from my perspective, so I am an identifiably white guy. And what that means is that I am also Spanish, but when you look at me, you wouldn't know it. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I said, you know what, my company, let's say I ran a company, my company, uh, hires equally. We don't discriminate. What, tends to happen now is someone, someone say, yeah, because you're a fucking white dude. What do you know? Right. Yep. It's almost as if, because you are this thing, right. That you have no control over, um, you are, we are discrediting what you're saying. Um, yeah. and but, I think that you're touching on something, which is that we're living in a world of people being very eager to publicly criticize other people on these issues, yes. which I have a very mixed feeling about because at first of all, I like the accountability. I like people being held to, you know, higher standards, especially publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said, like you can't, not, not everything can be known, right? Like I think it's entirely possible to run a completely fair and equitable company that, you know, for whatever reason at a certain moment in time looks one way or the other. Like you said, like visuals is just one fragment of like the actual diversity that a company represents, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And it's interesting. Cause I think, um, the thing that I've, I've sort of thought about, uh, is let, let's say you were a Hispanic man. Um, and I said, oh, my company hires whatever. And you were like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a white dude. You have no premise to say this. Now, the difference there is historically the context of racism, I think, has happened uh, predominantly from white individuals to people of other races. But I guess the point that I'm making is that I sometimes it, it just baffles me when people are discredited um, on a topic they're talking about because they might not fit the... Uh, historical victim of that topic if that makes sense i realize that we're talking about very touchy stuff yeah i think we are and for me i had a i had a moment where my perspective on all this stuff kind of changed i guess not a specific moment it wasn't like you know hit by lightning and then i changed my mind but slowly i kind of started to see things differently in that i I used to define things the way you are now where it's like oh racism or sexism is you know making a decision about somebody on the basis of their ethnicity their race their gender their uh sexuality something that um, you know, mm-hmm. if that's a, if that's a factor in the conversation, then that is what like racism and sexism is. Sure. Um, but I think that that misses a, a big point, which you're, you're touching on a little bit, which is that, uh, I don't really think you can be reverse racist. Like, I don't think you can really be racist towards white people because you, it doesn't work. <laughs> like, like we, we are as white people, we're, we're in the positions of, of power, uh, right? Like you, I don't think it's possible to actually like strip away a white person's power, uh, by, you know, making a decision about their race, uh, because what's important is not that 
that's why the decision is being made, but because the, there's, there's the sort of flow of power in those relationships, uh, right? Like, uh, sexism is not sexism because, oh, you did something because of someone's gender. It's because, uh, you know, like rape culture is the thing. And like women have mm-hmm. been, you know, minimized and, you know, hushed and, uh, you know, their, their impact on history has been minimized, uh, for so long, uh, that I, I feel like, uh, it's just, it's not, it's not a thing that, that works the other direction. Um, but, uh, you know, like you said, sticky topics. Yeah, it is. You know, uh, it's interesting. And the only thing that I, I think it's okay if we disagree, it's okay if everyone disagrees. Cause for me, the, oh, for uh, the, sure. prem- the premise there is that it's an open, it should be an open dialogue. Um, with a bit of, I, I I've had instances where it was very clear that I was being, uh, deferred, um, based on race, not in the workplace growing up as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't doing anything that where this, these things become very, uh, important and yeah. very powerful, but it was an, it was an instance in which it was like, well, wait a second, they're not picking me because it's something I have no, con- that has no bearing on my performance. If I'm going to pass the ball, if I make the ball, these kind of things. Uh, sure. but again, very easy topic. I actually have a story. I think or not might... topic, very easy example. I'm sorry. So I think one of the reasons that I, I feel the way I do is because, um, when I was in school at Micah, Micah is an mm-hmm. expensive school. Um, okay. and my family for, uh, we could do a whole other podcast about the financial history of my family, but uh, the summary of what that is, when I went to school, uh, it was a huge stretch for me and my family for me to be able to afford to go to MICA. Okay. Uh, I took out a lot of loans. Um, it was the kind of thing where like, I really didn't want to go anywhere else. Uh, and my family was dedicated to supporting me, as I mentioned you know, early on. But uh, it was not the kind of thing where it was like, you know, no question we could afford to go there. Um, so luckily, I got enough scholarships to kind of like barely, you know, reach the minimum that I needed to be able to, you know, go to the school. Yep. And MICA is really great about giving kind of more scholarships out over the course of your time at the school. Okay. Uh, as I understand other colleges, I never went to another college, but I think a lot of the way other colleges work, it's very often like you get 90% of your scholarships as an incoming freshman. And then you have those for the four years. And that's kind of like, regardless of your performance, you know, throughout the rest yeah. of the school year. Um, but Micah kind of is constantly reevaluating every year. You can reapply for more scholarships. Um, and you know, Micah is a school in inner city, Baltimore, mm-hmm. um, that is predominantly white. Uh, there's a big international population, mostly from, uh, Korea and, and other parts of, of Southeast Asia. Um, but you know, it's a school that it's, it's demographics are very different than the demographics of, of Baltimore mm-hmm. city. Um, and so the result of that is Micah has a lot of uh, initiatives to try and get, to try and diversify their student population, which means a lot okay. of scholarships are available to people that are not white men. Sure. Um, so when I looked at the pool of scholarships, I was eligible for that I needed. I, re- I really could have used those scholarships in a big way. Uh, yeah. It was not like it was a, you know, those things are in place because of, you know, for example, the history of like a racist housing policies sure. um, just means that for a lot of black families in America, there is not this uh, generational wealth that's being passed down because yep. of direct racist policies. Um, now, when you start taking broad strokes, like it doesn't mean that my family is inherently wealthy because I'm white, nor does it sure. mean that some, you know, black kids family is inherently unwealthy because they're black. Uh, it just means that, you know, the broad stroke of things, that's kind of a, a th- trend they're trying to sort of be aware of. So I was not eligible for as many scholarships as I want. At the time, when I was in school, I had a huge chip on my shoulder about that because here I was, mm-hmm. frankly, busting my ass. I worked really, really hard at MICA. Um, yep. You know, I, I, it's a school that uh, a lot of students come there from art magnet high schools, which is not even a thing I knew existed. Um, so when I showed up there, I was kind of like way behind in terms of my actual skills more than I thought sure. I was. Um busting my ass and I was not eligible for these scholarships in a way that, you know, upset me a lot at at the time. And I Mm -hmm. I felt like it was exactly what you're describing. I was like here, just because I'm white, uh, you're assuming that 
my family can afford this. You're assuming that, sure. uh, you know, making assumptions in, in, a, in, a, in your direction versus what's normally happened is that we've made assumptions in other directions. Yeah. And it yeah. felt like I was suffering because of my race a little bit and because of my gender, uh, sure. and, you know, it, it really did feel that way. Um, and my, my mind didn't really turn around on that until, you know, we graduated, we started friends of the web. There was, you know, times where, uh, you know, we didn't make a bunch of money for a while and the business started picking up a little bit. Um, and I'm very grateful to say that I was luckily able to pay off all my student loans, mm-hmm. uh, a year and a half after graduating and starting the company. Um, and a few months after I did that, I had the realization. I was like, Oh shit. Like they knew that, like the, the system is in place for those reasons, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it's not just the fact that it's quite possible that my family, uh, you know, statistically you average things across the entire population. Not only is it possible that, uh, my family is more likely to be able to pay for me to go there normally without as many scholarships. Sure. But also once I graduate, my ability to make back that money, like how many rooms did I walk into to meet a potential client that would not have gone as well if I had been a woman or if I had been a person of color or if I had been something else? Uh, yeah, I have no, no idea. I have no way to tell. But they were right. Um, so now so now I kind of feel like, so, so I mean, they were, they were ultimately right. Like, I, ultimately, I didn't really need those loans or didn't really need those scholarships. It felt like I did. It really felt like I did yeah. because I was taking out this money that I had to pay back. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, things worked out exactly as I think the system is probably designed for things to work out. Um, so when it comes to, like, your example, I'm not saying that making decisions based on someone's race is the best way to do it. I'm not saying it's forgivable. Uh, but ultimately, like, at the end of the day, uh, unless those decisions are affecting some of the, like, really important social and political things. I just, I don't think it's, it's racism in the same way, or I don't think it's sexism in the same way. I think it's just, uh, you know, a heuristic for making decisions. And then when that heuristic leads to like the systematic, uh, disenfranchising of a whole people, uh, mm-hmm. that's when I think we start talking about what racism is and what sexism is. That's, um, I think that's a fair point, but I think it's, are you familiar with the, uh, broken window philosophy? Yeah. yeah broken window whatever? policing for sure. There you go. Like Edward Koch, right. I was yep. in, and that's how he helped stop some of the larger uh, crime in New York City that was happening at the time. So I think about these topics like that. Um, so the premise of broken window policing, right? You, let's say you've got, a, as far as I understand, let's say you've got a building that has a cracked window in it. If no one reports that window or if no one fixes that window, um, then it becomes very clear to other people that no one care about this thing. So then more windows get broken. It, it starts getting vandalized, all this kind of thing. So uh, the broken window policing policies that Edward Koch put in place in New York City was that all crime should be treated, quote unquote, equal. So jaywalking, littering, all those things should be stopped mm-hmm. because that helps prevent larger things, instances from happening. It, it, it works, doesn't work, right? Someone, if someone's jaywalking, doesn't directly mean that they're going to go rob a bank. But the idea is that all crimes need to be treated as crimes. Um, with that being said, I sort of, uh, I agree with that mentality in this instance. Also, I don't have a ton of experience on the other side of this, so I could easily see how I could be uh, blind to it a bit. But I guess the, uh, what I'm getting at is like, whether it's uh, a white person towards a person of color or a person of color towards another person of color, or, you know, all those varieties, I think it still should be seen as like, you should not base decisions on those categories is, is the premise that I'm getting at. Um, I understand it's substantially uh, harder to talk about, to quote unquote police, to fix, um, not only on a personal level, industry level. Um, it's still, it's, it's very clear. It's a point thing in the industry. And I think it's really important. Um, and at the very least, what I will say with all of this is that um, I appreciate that someone else being you can talk about it in an open topic for what it's Hello. worth. Yeah. For what it's worth, we are two identifiably white dudes, so you could probably throw it out the window as well. 
well, yeah, that's what happens on our, our podcast all the time. We end up talking about subjects and ending by going, but we're just a bunch of white dudes that uh, have the same perspective. So who knows? Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I, like we said, this is a sticky thing. We could talk about this forever. Um, the, the broken window thing, as I understand it, some of the problems with it is that it just leads to an excuse to over-police areas where people yes. are less financially able to fix, for example, a broken window. Sure. Uh, broken windows are really expensive. Trust me. I have a house now. I know how expensive <laughs> it would be to replace a broken window. Um, and, you know, I think that there is a lot of, uh, a lot can be said about the police presence in, uh, in poor neighborhoods that is not necessarily positive. So oh, yeah, for, totally. whatever, for whatever it's worth. Um, yeah. I, I think we can probably, here, here's what I'll do. I will give you a much better, much shorter answer to your question of what I would give, what advice I give to myself as a younger person. And okay. then you can edit it however you want. Okay. So we'll just take a little break. Uh, if I could go back and give myself any advice, uh, I would just tell myself, I would convince me in the past to take a course in women's studies uh, at Micah. I know they had great women's studies courses. And at the time, I felt like it wasn't for me. And now I realize that that's really just uh, like the history of the whole world uh, in yeah. a way that I think is really important and a perspective I wish I had. So that's awesome. Simple, um, practical advice for me. Wish I had I, taken that course. So for what it's worth, I, I did take a women's studies course at USF. I went to University of South Florida. It's a big school. It's not necessarily great at everything. Uh, few people I would recommend is Larry Lemons was my professor, um, who's interesting enough, a black male, which I was like, I went in there. I'm like, oh, you're not a woman. I was like, all right, this is cool. Whatever. He brought very interesting perspectives. And, and I believe he has some pieces published, like more uh uh, yeah, institute educational type pieces published, but his mentor was this woman, Bell Hooks, who's also oh, yeah. I know Bell Hooks. Well, okay, I know her. I know of her yeah, work, yeah, yeah. Um, her work is incredible. I love. I, I got to meet her once because she came to our university. I think it was oh, because great. of of Larry. Uh, so I have like a picture on Facebook with me and her, and it was really cool. But I really oh, enjoyed a lot of her work on education and like pedagogy of education, that kind of stuff. So she's really cool. All right, so we've got that out of the way. Question uh, one that only took a half hour. All right, what's question yeah, right. two? Question two is what would you tell somebody else if you got an email or you spoke at something and, and, you know, um, I don't know, a junior or senior in college was like, Hey Andy, what do I need to do? Or what advice would you give me? What would you tell them? Specifically in like the design industry? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's doing what I'm mm-hmm. doing, but a few years behind me. Yeah. Um, I mean, my, my advice is really always for people to just, and this is the thing that, you know, I realize every single topic is coming back to the idea of privilege, but I would like for my advice to be do whatever you're most interested in and like pursue sure. things that you love with no shame and like no, uh, no shortcoming of like enthusiasm. Uh, like I think sometimes there's a negative tone put on people that get really into something, mm-hmm. but I've, I've had nothing but value come from my life from getting really into things. So I would encourage people to really pursue those things to the extent that they're able recognizing that, not everyone is always able to pursue the things they love uh, at all costs. But sure. um, that's something that's been valuable to me. And I would just encourage people that even if you feel like you don't know where it's headed or if, uh, you know, you don't know for sure that it's something you want to do forever, if you feel yourself pulled towards something, like just go with that see where it goes. Yep. Uh, that makes total sense. Um, the last question is a super fun time question. It has nothing to do with the show. I'm making it up right now. And um, normally I come up based off of, personality or topic. Uh, but the reality is those kind of questions I've already asked on the show before. So I have to come up with a new question. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to eat one dessert for the rest of your life. What is that dessert? One dessert for the rest. I mean, it's probably some variety of pie because you know, pie, you got, you got the like crispy, it's, it's a pie. Pie is a combination of multiple things, you know, like, sure. I, never yeah. say, like I like ice cream well enough, but ice cream is just ice cream. 
Yep. Uh, you, know, you can get a, a wide variety of pies. It's one temperature. It's one thing. Different flavors, sure. Um, you know, a pie, you've got crust. You've got, you know, different kinds of fillings. With So if I had to choose a, a specific exact pie that would be, like, replicated over and over again that I would eat every day, uh, I'm, I'm going to go with some really good apple pie probably. All right. Uh, but if I can just say the general idea of pie with some flexibility on the details, then I'm definitely going with pie. Nice. Good. Yeah, I love pie. I actually had I had uh, little forkfuls of three different types of pie last night. Oh, it was man. delicious. What a yeah. life you have. <laughs> I know. Um, all right, Andy. So where can people find you online and stuff if people want to talk to you, reach out to you, stalk you, whatever? That's a good question. Um, uh, Twitter is really the only thing I use, uh, and I use it sometimes. So get at me on Twitter, at Andy Mangold. Um, I don't have a website anymore because mine... The CSS on mine broke a while ago. And I didn't feel like fixing it, so I just took it down. <laughs> um, but uh, recently on our show, uh, I, uh, one of my co-hosts did it on making a website for me. So if you go to uh, idisagreewithandy.man.gold, uh, that's a website where you can submit a form saying you disagree with me about something. Uh, we use it for the other show, but you know it seems as good, as, as good here as anywhere else. So uh, you can also find me at idisagreewithandy.man.gold. This is can, hilarious. Where you can tell me why I'm wrong about stuff. And I can <laughs> learn to grow as a person. That's great. Well, cool. Andy, I appreciate your time with me. Thank you for being on the show. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.